0: So, Lord, we pray, I'm borrowing from Psalm 25, I pray that you now might show us your ways, O Lord, and teach us your paths, that you might guide us in your truth and teach us, for you are God our Saviour, and our hope is in you all day long. We pray that you would keep the promise of that word, to show, to teach, to guide, and to give us hope all day long. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. Thank you very much for Jeff and the band. As always, in leading us in some uh, fantastic songs. What is God like? I just want to launch in this morning with a reminder, straight off a reminder, because we so quickly forget this, of what God is like. There are three bedrock realities of who God is that the Bible encourages us to put the anchor of our lives in, knowing that when the storms come or the waves hit, if we're anchored into those three bedrocks, we cannot be shifted, we cannot move. The first is that God is all-loving. He is kind and compassionate and caring and overflowing with a desire to do us good. He is too loving to wish us harm. That's the image in the Bible, isn't it, of God the Father. I don't know what your father was like. We all come with different experiences. But even if your father was a fantastic father in every shape, way and form, he has displayed to you just a a minuscule, a minutiae of the fabulous nature of God the Father's love. God the Father who loves all people. And through Jesus, the Son says, come and be part of the family. And that is fantastic good news isn't it come and be part of the family be a child be a, uh, a son or a daughter of God who can say to God Papa You can say to God Daddy and right the way through the Bible we're told that this is who God is he is a God of love and if you've been a Christian 30 years sometimes somehow we forget that don't we We start to think of God in all sorts of other categories, in all sorts of other ways. Or we attach to God the Father aspects of fatherhood which are corrupt or warped or not accurate. But He is the perfect Father. So we're told, for example, in Numbers chapter 14, He is abounding in love. And I like that a lot because Numbers, the book in the Bible called Numbers, is called Numbers because it's all about trying to count everything. If you've ever read it, you've probably got halfway through and got very bored, unless you are an accountant. And then it's your favourite book of the Bible. Everything is given an empirical measure. Everything is given a number, except what? What's the one thing they cannot calculate? The one thing they cannot put a measure next to? God's love. It's abounding in love, says the very book about numbers. That word abounding in Hebrew means it's incalculable. We couldn't put a number to it. Everything else we could number, but God's love we couldn't. Or in 1 Kings 10, we're told that it's an eternal love from beginning to end and everywhere in between. God is a God of love. Or 26 times in one psalm, one piece of poetry, we're told that he is good and his love endures forever, perseveres forever. Whatever you might go through, God's love perseveres there with you. There is nothing that God says, I no longer love you because his love perseveres through it all. Your most rancid sin and error and mistake, right now you feel convicted and guilty about. God says, my love endured through it. Forever his love endures. And just in case we didn't get it, that one psalm puts it 26 times. If I'd written poetry like that in my poetry class at school, my teacher would have said that lacks creativity. Every line, every second line is the same word, but God says it's because you forget. You read one line and you've forgotten that his love endures forever, so you better read it again. It endures, it endures. We're told in Nehemiah 13, he says it's a great love. Psalm 13, it's an unfailing love. Psalm 26, it's a love that is ever before us. Even when we are blind to it and need God to blaze our sight back to us, it doesn't mean his love is not there just because we cannot see it. It is ever before us. Uh, Psalm 63, this one is amazing. His love is better than life. Think how amazing life is. Think how fantastic life is at its best. Think of your creativity. Think of your joy. Think of your excitement. Think about life when it is working. Multiply exponentially to a figure that you cannot write unless you've got 364 pieces of paper and you're using font size 7. And God says... Actually, my love is better than that. Psalm 119 says the earth is filled with his love. Christmas, a few weeks ago, we had to get the big pots out of the garage for the potatoes. Did anyone else have to do that? We kind of have Christmas saucepans. They come out about twice a year, Christmas and one other time. They're the big pots for all the roasties and mash and whatnot we had to do. Yeah, you've got big pots in the garage. Out they came big containers. But the Bible says the only container big enough to hold God's love is what? The earth is filled with his love. That's how much of it there is. Psalm 145 finishes those great love poems of God, what are called the Psalms, by saying he is rich in love. God is our father, a father who loves all people. He is complete and perfect in his compassion, too loving to ever wish us harm. One of my favourite songwriters is a chap called Stuart Townend. The worship band uh, give me a bit of g- uh, uh, jit because whenever I suggest a new song to play, every other song I suggest comes out of the hand of Stuart Townend. He's a great, a great singer-songwriter of Christian songs. This is one of my favourites. It's called Vagabonds. I won't try and sing it to you, but it has a great tune. I really won't. That's one way to empty the church. This is what it says. Come all you vagabonds. Come all you don't belongs. Winners and losers, come people like me. Come all you travellers, tired from the journey. Come wait a while, stay a while. Welcome you'll be. Come all you questioners, looking for answers, and searching for reasons and sense in it all. Come all you fallen, and come all you broken. Find strength for your body and food for your soul. Come to the feast. There is room at the table. Come, let us meet in his place with the king of all kindness who welcomes us in with the wonder of love and the power of grace. Come, all who worry about houses and money and all those who don't have a care in the world from every station and orientation, the helpless, the hopeless, the young and the old. Come, all believers and dreamers, and schemers, and come all you restless, just searching for home, movers and shakers and givers and takers, the happy, the sad, the lost, and alone. Come self-sufficient, with wearied ambition. And come those who feel at the end of the road, fiery debaters and religion haters, accusers, abusers, the hurt and ignored. Come to the feast. There is room at the table. Come, let us meet in this place with the king of all kindness who welcomes you in with the wonder of love and the power of grace. That is who God is. He is our father who loves us all and says to every one of you, including you this morning, come, come to the table. There is room for you. He is an all-loving God. But the second great anchor of the three the Bible says we should dig our lives into, to survive when the waves and the wind head. The second is that God is all wise. Not only is he too loving to wish us harm, but he's a wise God. And therefore he is too wise to make a mistake. He is too wise to have led our life into something that ultimately is wrong or mistaken or foolish. Just like he's God the Father who loves all people, he is God the Judge who is right in all ways. It's not possible for God to make a mistake. He's all wise. Job, who experienced some of life's biggest mysteries and questions and uncertainties, Job says his wisdom is profound, his power vast. To God belong wisdom and power counsel and understanding are his. Or Isaiah in the Old Testament says God is wonderful and counsel and magnificent in wisdom. Or Paul in the New Testament just puts it as bluntly as we can. He says God is the only wise one. What he means by that is God's wisdom is so spectacularly greater than anyone or anything else's wisdom, it makes that second place wisdom look like no wisdom at all. Does that make sense? That he is really the only source of wisdom. He is what is right and he can do no wrong. He is never mistaken. So friends, not only if you think of the question, well who is God, the God of the universe, the God revealed perfectly in Jesus, not only is a God of all love, but he's a God of all wisdom. Not only does he intend good for us, but his intentions are also right not wrong. And then the third great anchor, and all this will make sense in a moment in terms of where I'm taking it, the third great reality of who God is, is that God is all powerful, sovereign, supreme, in control, mighty, too strong to be thwarted. Not only is God the Father who loves us and loves us too much to wish us harm, not only is he God the Judge who is wise and right in all ways and therefore too wise to have made a mistake, but he is God the Creator who rules all existence. He is too strong to be thwarted. Not only are his intentions good, not only are his intentions right, but his intentions will be accomplished. He cannot be stopped. Jeremiah tells us nothing is too hard for God. Luke chapter 1 says, With God, nothing is impossible. Or the flip side in Matthew 19, With God, all things are possible. But I like it shot from the hip. And Psalm 115 says it as it is. God does whatever he pleases. God does whatever he pleases. What is God like? Did you need the reminder? I don't know. I constantly do. I need the reminder that God is my Father who loves me intently and loves me too much to wish me harm. I need the reminder that God is this perfect wise judge who knows all things and is constantly, permanently, always right, too wise to have made a mistake in my life. Even when I put my head in my hands and go, what have I done? He's not got it wrong, sovereignly. And thirdly, I need the reminder that God is all-powerful. Not just my Father who loves me, my judge who guides me, but my creator who rules me. And these things are perfected in Jesus, aren't they? You see God's love and his wisdom and his power perfectly in Jesus. But the question that was raised last week, for those of us who are with us, looking at Ruth chapter 1, and this kind of is an appendix, if you like, to last week's talk, is how do these three things, this trio of realities of God, converge in suffering? How am I meant to understand God when life is hard, when there's a crushing cancer that my neighbour has been diagnosed with, when a relationship has become fractured and broken, or I look back on a marriage that didn't work, or I myself are battling with a depression or a mental illness, or the economy is such that I'm struggling to meet the financial responsibilities that I have. Or or my child has gone wayward at school. Where is God when life is hard? And the risk is, is what we do is we decide that suffering must deny one of these realities of who God is. Have you ever done this? That actually this pain I'm experiencing, this reality that I'm facing, which is bleak and hard, must mean God is not loving must mean that God maybe is unkind or even a little bit cruel. At best that he's just disinterested in my life. Have you ever had that thought cross your mind in the middle of it? God doesn't care about me. Always say suffering perhaps is a denial of God's wisdom. He does love me and, and he wants to do right, but he doesn't know what right is. He's a bit of a fool. And so he's mistaken and a bit bumbling. Or perhaps we think suffering denies God's sovereignty. Yes, he's a God who loves me deeply and intently and he knows what should be done in my life, he's wise, but he simply is not powerful to see it through. He simply is overcome by my medical condition or by the economy or by a tsunami. These things are more powerful than him and therefore he's not sovereign, weak and incapable. And the risk is when we face trial, when we're in difficulty, when we're journeying in the hard times, we end up with a God who is bad and not loving or a God who is wrong and not wise or a God who is unable and not sovereign. But friends, and the whole point of this talk is to help us journey well when times are hard. Stand firm if they're hard for you right now. Look back and see what God has done in past hard times. Prepare for future ones. Friends, what if what God calls us to do, you may not be a Christian, but I think this will work for you anyway, is to hold these three together as a lens, a triple lens, if you like, to see our suffering through, to assume that God remains loving and wise and sovereign in suffering. So we end up with a God whose intention is perfect love, who sees and knows all things perfectly, and is able to do perfectly whatever he pleases. A God who wants our best, knows what's best, and accomplishes that best. And if that is true, then it must mean when life is hard, when there is suffering, God is plotting his best through your worst. That God must be plotting his best through your worst. Because he's a God who loves you, and a God who's made no mistakes, because he's wise, and he's sovereign. A God who is plotting his best through your worst. And actually, we see the Bible tell us explicitly that is what God is doing in suffering. If you've got a Bible there, I just want to show you two places in the Bible. Though I'll read them to you. First, turn with me to Romans 8, sentence 28. It's on page 1135. There's Bibles, I think, a few left at the back if you'd like them page 1135 Romans 8 verse 28 this is what it says Romans 8:28 and we know so that's a statement of confidence and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Let me read that first clause again. For we know, it's a statement of certainty, isn't it? For we know that in all things, so that captures tears and laughter, pain and light, all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That God is plotting his best even in our worst. Turn to the second one, Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, sentence 17, page 1161, page 1161, 2 Corinthians 4, sentence 17, page 1161, 2 Corinthians 4, sentence 17, this is Paul writing, he says, for our light and momentary troubles now paul uses the most modern modest phrase he's talking about shipwreck a beating a whipping imprisonment a numerous attempts to assassinate him and some kind of medical condition to do with his eyes that meant he wanted to gouge his eyes out the pain was so bad so when paul says light and momentary it must be tongue-in-cheek For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Isn't it interesting, preparing for us? If the troubles were not there, the preparation could not take place. But when there is the troubles, what is God doing? He is preparing for us an eternal glory. One of the most insightful writers that I've come across is a chap called John Piper and some of you will know that I'm a fan of him because I quote him quite often and in his little commentary on the book of Ruth this is what he says and it's worth hearing and pondering. The painful things that come into our lives are not described by God as accidental or as out of his control. This would be no comfort. That God cannot stop a germ or a car or a bullet or a demon is not good news, and it's not the news of the Bible. God can, and 10,000 times he does. But when he doesn't, he has his reasons. And in Christ Jesus, they are all loving. To know that our Father in heaven has ordained our pain is not a comfortable truth, but it is comforting that our pain has a loving, and wise, and all powerful purpose behind it is better than any other view of God. A weak God, a cruel God, a bumbling God, no God. There is a great advantage in knowing that God is sovereign over the pain and pleasure of our lives. We will trust Him to do us good, whether it feels like it or not at the moment. And we will wait for the day when all will be repaid and made plain. Now, I want to talk more personally for the second half of the talk now. I want to ask the question well, what is the good that God would be plotting in our pain? How can any of us authentically look at the pain our own lives may have experienced, or of the people around us we love or know, and imagine God could produce something good that outweighs? the bad. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, isn't it? That it outweighs the bad that has been experienced. What is that plotting of death? What is the good that he's doing in all things? What is the eternal glories that he is producing through suffering? Now, what it can't be is health, wealth, and happiness, can it? Because if what God was doing through our pain and our difficulty and our struggles was to make us healthy, wealthy and happy, then I'd be standing up here looking out at the fittest, richest and happiest people in Stafford. And I hate to break it to you, because the church is just made up of ordinary people, isn't it? On every spectrum you could measure, we cover it all, don't we? We're just ordinary So whatever the good that God is plotting through our pain, it cannot be health, wealth, and happiness. He has treasures which so outweigh a crushing cancer or a dark depression or an isolating grief or a chronic disability. He has treasures that so outweigh that that they make health, wealth, and happiness look like a feather in their likeness. I think we're attracted to health, wealth, and happiness, aren't we? I think we're impressed by them the same way we're impressed by that spluttering little firework my dad used to light in the back garden on a November evening. I used to be so impressed by that because I'd never stood in Sydney Harbour on New Year's Eve and had night turned to day by the firework display. But I think we're impressed by health, wealth and happiness. We think that's what God should deliver for us In the same way that when we walk past a dark alley and some scrawny alley cat snarls at us, we skitter away because we've never stood in the face of a roaring lion's rage. Ah, A cat. So we're impressed with being healthy and wealthy and happy because we have never seen the treasures that God has in store for us. So a BMW actually looks like it's worth having. Or the extra bedroom actually looks like it's worth having. So what possibly can God do that outweighs our troubles so much it makes them look momentary and light? That's what Paul is saying, wasn't it, in 2 Corinthians 4. Beaten, imprisoned, assassination attempt, an illness that wanted to gouge out his eyes, deserted by his friends, and he's able to call them light and momentary because he has seen beyond health, wealth, and happiness to glorious realities that God is preparing for him through that suffering that makes him say these horrific things are light and momentary. I want to finish by giving you five examples, very quickly, of many more in the Bible, five examples of the loving and wise purposes of a God who is sovereign in yours and my suffering so that you can look back on suffering you've been through and identify what God did through it, the glorious reality he produced. You can stand firm in suffering you're experiencing today. You can prepare for suffering that will come inevitably into all our lives, or you can journey with another. Let me give you the five. The first one, and these will pop up on the screen, there it is. The first one that the Bible tells us is that we get to see Jesus better. That suffering is a unique Way to see the fullness of who Jesus is. So Job, who experienced horrific suffering, his family were killed, he lost his wealth, his reputation went into the pits. We find him sitting on a scrap heap, homeless, destitute, with a piece of pottery trying to scrape the pus out of boils on his skin as his wife whispers the divorce proceedings into his ear. And at the end of it all, he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. But now my eyes have seen you. Or in Mark chapter 4, we read of the disciples of Jesus in a boat when a huge storm erupts, and they're absolutely terrified. They think they're going to die. Jesus intercedes and calms that storm, and only after having suffered do they see Jesus sufficiently to say, Who is this man? C.S. Lewis talks about it, suffering as the megaphone that God uses to speak his reality into our life. Twice this week, and it's a relatively average week just gone, twice this week I heard people use phrasing like, I only came to faith in Jesus because of that suffering. Or, I have a newfound closeness to Jesus that I've never experienced before because of that pain. And I think many of you could testify to what God has done through suffering. And seeing Jesus more is a treasure that far outweighs, far outweighs anything this world could offer, isn't it? Secondly, what God may be doing as he plots his best as he's a loving God who cares for us through suffering. His suffering allows us a joyful union with Jesus. Jesus was marked by suffering. He died a suffering servant. And there is something about going through suffering, the Bible tells us, in our life, which allows us to be unified and connected to Jesus in a unique way that would be absent if we never suffered. We have something of an understanding, a union with his own suffering. And so, in Philippians three, Paul can amazingly say, "I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection." Now, I could say that all day long. That bit, "I want to know Christ and the power, the victory." It's like the power of grace, scholar or something, isn't it? If you remember that, I say that all day long. Becoming like Him in His death. Well, Peter writes, "Rejoice that you participate." In the sufferings of Christ, there is a joy that is generated when our suffering, we attach to Jesus' suffering and we journey with him. Thirdly, what could God be doing in your suffering? His loving and sovereign and wise purposes. And of course, if we struggle to see that God is loving by doing this, it's probably because we haven't stood in Sydney Harbour and therefore impressed by the damp squib of a firework. It's because we've never seen the roaring raging line and so our intimidated by the alley cat, if we haven't started to pray and ask God to reveal his magnitude to us, then actually we'll look at some of these things God is doing and say, I'd rather have the better car. I'd rather have the cancer-free body. Really challenging, isn't it, of how much of a treasure Jesus is. Thirdly, suffering allows us the greater development in Christ-likeness. James, it's an incredible statement he makes. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, I know simply from meeting many people and hearing their stories that some of the wisest, most mature, most stable people I know are like that because of the furnace of suffering. And some of the flightiest and least consistent and most uncertain people I know are those who, for whatever reason, their life has missed the suffering. James says, consider it pure joy when you suffer because of the development of your character, which outweighs, makes the suffering momentary and passing compared to the weight of glory of having a character of depth and reality. It's a furnace. Psalm 199, that can't be right, because there's only 150 psalms, isn't it? Clearly a typo there. I'm guessing that's meant to say Psalm 119. Yeah, it can't be, Psalm Psalm, Psalm 19 hasn't got that many verses. It must be Psalm 119, uh, 67 and 71. It says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so I may learn your decrees. How stark is that? What came out of the affliction didn't make the affliction good, but was good to have happened because of the consequence. Does that make sense? We don't look at suffering and say that's a good thing. We battle it, we fight it, we want it out of our world. But God works in such a way that we can look back on suffering and say I can call it good because of what he produced in me. Fourthly, suffering allows us the clearest opportunity to reveal Jesus to the world. Let me illustrate this and give you a brain break for a moment. We are coming into land. Um, I'm not a sailor at all. I love swimming. I love the water. I love water sports. never, Never learned to sail in any significant way. We spent a period living in Hong Kong, as many of you know, on the island of Hong Kong, surrounded by boats, surrounded by sailboats, and I had a friend who was a sailor, and he asked me to come down and and have a day or a half day on his boat. And I'm like, that's a great idea. So I go down to the little harbour place to get in his boat, and I ride there, and he's standing on it. And I I thought yacht, like I thought big, I thought minibar. That's what I was thinking. And I got there, and I'm like, well, where am I going to stand in this thing? Like, it could have been smaller than this little bit of stage here. Tiny little skiff. I think my handkerchief, I don't carry one, but if I did, was bigger than the sail on this thing. And I'm looking out, and we're on the, the, the island there, and then there, there's a short stretch to the mainland. And then obviously on the other side, like thousand miles, you hit the Philippines or something. You know, just stretching out for miles. And we're on that side. And I'm standing on this little harbour, and I could have jumped over this skiff of a boat. And I'm looking out at the sea that just goes forever and ever and ever. And I just said, I'm sorry, I don't want to die. That's, that's it. I'm not getting in there. And it was perfectly calm. And he's jumping on it, trying to rock it, you know. <laughs> and it's like that. Going, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. I'm like, I'm not getting in the boat. And then he says, give me a minute. You just stand there. And he gave me some binoculars. He said, stay there and give me 10 minutes. And he did whatever he did with the ropes and the pulleys and the systems and all the rest of it. And he started to sail this boat out of the calm harbour into the ocean. And the ocean, it wasn't particularly like tornado weather, but the waves were big. Like, you know, eight, nine feet high. There were big waves, like coming up probably up there, isn't it? Like really high kind of swells like this. And he goes out, and the boat like this, you know. And I'm looking through the binoculars. And then I see him standing up, and he's waving like this. I'm like, you shouldn't do that too much. And then I hear my phone go. I take my phone out. And it's him on his phone out there. He's standing like this on the boat. He says, now do you trust the boat? You know, dancing around. And I kind of looked and I thought, yeah, I do. I do. We don't say anything about our faith and our confidence in Jesus when life is in the calm harbour. And we say, come on, come trust Jesus, get on the boat. But when your life is in the storm, when the waves are nine foot high, when it comes crashing down on you, and the boat stays strong, then you can beckon people, can't you? And they say, yeah, I, I can trust that. I can go on that boat. Now, I'll be honest, in the story, when he got back, time had ticked on, and I was quite glad to say, well, I would, but have run out of time now, and I can't go on the boat. But that bit doesn't help with the illustration, so forget that bit. That's, in essence, what Peter says here. You suffer griefs in all sorts of trials. That's just a description of ordinary life. These have come so that your faith, your boat that you're standing on, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, the root of that word is trustworthy, and may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. What God is doing through suffering is allowing you to beckon many others onto your boat that is called Jesus, and find they are safe there in the storm where they never would be safe anywhere else. Have you allowed Jesus to use your suffering like that? Or in the wind and the waves, have you hunkered down, closed your mouth, and just ridden it Or have you stood up like my mate here? Look at the boat. I'm in the storm, but it's rock solid. Fifth and finally, suffering, suffering allows us a unique ability to convey the compassion of God. God, in his kindness, uses our suffering experience to give comfort and reassurance to others who journey through the same kind of experience. Many times I've seen the comfort offered by a mum who has lost a child or had a stillbirth. infinitely greater received by another mum in that situation than the comfort anyone else could offer. One cancer survivor can speak to another in a way no one else can. It is a great gift that comes through suffering and pain. To comfort others. Paul again in 2 Corinthians, Praise be. It's a reason to praise God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we may comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. You see, we're in trouble, God comforts us because he loves us. And that gives us the ability to comfort others when they are in trouble. My hope this morning is to have spoken in a way that helps us know the true God even when life is difficult. A God of love, wisdom and power. And to know that means that even in the midst of suffering, pain, trial, heartache, whatever it might be, that God has glorious Purposes that ultimately will far outweigh any of those momentary afflictions we will experience. Now, I know that when we are in the midst of suffering and pain and heartache, we are blind to that. We need God to blaze that before us, and we need to be so patient with one another in the midst of suffering. But I want us to be able to look back and see what God has done in the own suffering of our own lives. I want us to stand firm in the trials we will be facing today. I want us to be prepared for the future, and I desperately want us to be good friends to one another and to help us journey well in suffering. I cannot take away the pain that is in our world. Nor can I claim, obviously, to have the eternal hindsight that will counter our limited horizons today and counter our stunted imaginations and be able to look And tell you what God is doing in your suffering. That will come probably in eternity when we look back. But I can and I will declare to your heart and mind that even in suffering, God is working in wisdom and in love. And he is achieving glorious purposes in and through your life. Please do not doubt that. Even when suffering or sin or brokenness has blinded you, talk to yourself in the best possible way and say, I know who God is. His intentions are only good, because he loves. His intentions are only right, because he's wise. And his intentions will be accomplished. And I've given you five examples of what those are might be we're going to share communion this morning as we finish and in that I want to invite you as, you as we share bread and wine if you call yourself a Christian you're welcome to participate to bring your trials to God to bring the trials of friends to God, to pray for his intervention, to pray that he would relieve suffering, but also to pray that he'll reveal to you what he is doing in that suffering. So let's have a moment's quiet. And then Jeff, why don't you come get ready? And lead us with the Lord is my shepherd as we head in.